Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Late yesterday afternoon our time, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a live televised address saying Russia had no intention of occupying Ukraine. Then minutes after that TV appearance, authorised a military operation in the country's Donbass region. President Putin, in the name of humanity, bring your troops back to Russia. Do not allow to start in Europe what could be the worst war since the beginning of the century, with consequences not only devastating for Ukraine, not only tragic for the Russian Federation, but with an impact we cannot even foresee in relation to their consequences for the global economy when we are emerging from the COVID and so many developing countries absolutely need to have space for the recovery, this conflict must stop now. So what does this mean for the world? What does this mean for Ukraine? And is there anything that can stop Vladimir Putin from starting a potential world war? Move by Mamma Mia! is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia! subscribers get unlimited access to Move, and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Today, Ukrainians woke up in a very different country to the one they fell asleep in. Over the past few months, Russian troops have been gathering at the Russian-Ukrainian border. Battalion after battalion joined their comrades who brought with them tanks and artillery that would see them very capable of launching a full-scale invasion. NATO allies warned Russian President Vladimir Putin that they were poised and ready to defend any country signed on to the military alliance and that heavy sanctions would be imposed should troops enter Ukraine. Ukraine is not part of NATO, something that Putin wants to remain that way, saying Ukraine should consider themselves aligned with Russia and not the West. I would like to reiterate that Ukraine to us, it's not just a neighbouring country. It's a part and parcel of our own history, culture, our soul, atmosphere and space. It's our comrades, our close people, not just colleagues or friends, uh, former colleagues, but relatives. 
while his actions said otherwise. Putin was swearing and declaring that he had no intention of invading Ukraine. But US intelligence was telling a different story. Their sources were saying that Russia was poised for a false flag invasion, that they were orchestrating a reason to invade which would make it look like it wasn't their fault, that they were simply responding to an attack from the other side. And then it happened. Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine chose this moment to call on Russia to back their call to become independent states. That gave Putin the opportunity he needed to send in troops on what he's calling a peacekeeping mission, protecting those regions from the Ukrainian government. But protecting them from what exactly? The spokesperson for the US State Department, Ned Price, tweeted that we needed to look out for disinformation coming from the Kremlin, and that would include claims that Ukraine is committing genocide, that Ukraine is attacking the eastern cities of Donetsk and Luhansk, and that Ukraine was conducting terrorist attacks. Journalists working in those regions say they have not seen any evidence that any of these claims are true. Countries from the US to Germany and even us here in Australia condemned the move, imposing strict sanctions hitting major Russian banks and even personal finances and travel movements of those close to President Putin in the hopes it would dissuade any further push into Ukraine. Then, in the early hours of the morning Russian-Ukrainian time, Vladimir Putin conducted a live TV broadcast saying he'd authorised a military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region. He said the action came in response to threats from Ukraine. He warned any countries opposing the action or any attempts to interfere would lead to consequences they have never seen. He called on Ukrainian soldiers to immediately lay down their weapons and go home. Putin said the Russian military operation was designed to demilitarise and denazify Ukraine. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, who's now declared a state of martial law while telling his citizens not to panic, is himself Jewish. As soon as the comments went to air, reports of explosions started to come in from across Ukraine. This CNN journalist in the capital of Kiev was doing a live cross back to the US when the explosions occurred. Oh, I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. There are reports of explosions in at least seven other cities and of both Russian and Belarusian troops attacking Ukraine on several fronts, but also calls for calm, as some of the reports could be Russian disinformation designed to seed panic and demoralise Ukrainians into giving up. CNN showed pictures of a massive blast at Kiev's international airport. US President Joe Biden responded immediately, saying the United States and its allies would respond in a united and decisive way to an unprovoked and unjustified attack by Russian military forces on Ukraine. Mr Biden said that Putin has chosen a premeditated war that will bring catastrophic loss of life and human suffering, that Russia alone is responsible for the death and destruction this attack will bring, that the world will hold Russia accountable. So does that mean that Putin's troops will definitely head into Ukraine beyond the disputed territories in the east? We caught up with John Blacksland, Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at the Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in Canberra, just an hour before Putin made his announcement yesterday. Professor, what's really happening in that disputed eastern region right now? 
false flag operations, the concept is you're showing the flag of a country you're purporting to represent for actions that you're really pretending are theirs when they're actually yours. So this is what's been happening with the deception operations that the Russians have been undertaking. So they have for some time now been accusing the Ukrainians of provocative acts that have undermined the welfare and security of Russian Ukrainians in the enclaves in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, where there is a majority of Russian identifying Ukrainians. And they are the areas of Luhansk and Donetsk that Vladimir Putin has now claimed are independent Russian territories, which he is going to protect, protect being a bit of a euphemism. And the idea of peacekeeping is actually a noble pedigree, but it in the past has essentially been about an international mandate, usually from the United Nations, to stand between two opposing forces that have agreed to a ceasefire or some kind of negotiated settlement over which the peacekeepers are exercising some supervision. That is not what's happening here. This is a military intervention by armed forces who were not invited by any legal authority recognised by anyone other than Vladimir Putin and the elites in Moscow. And it is quite extraordinary that Vladimir Putin is speaking this way with a forked tongue in a way expecting people to believe it. And I think if you're in Russia, you may well believe it because your media is controlled by the state and there are few opportunities for people to hear views that are alternative to those being espoused by Vladimir Putin and those close to him. So a bit untidy. It's hard to believe that in this day and age, a country like Russia, which you know to a certain extent is much like much of Europe, would be so closed and so controlled. But that seems to be what's happened, and Vladimir Putin seems to be playing on this belief that he can manipulate perceptions domestically and sufficiently internationally. But of course, there is just no credibility internationally on this, almost at all, except in the case of China, where there is a perception that they are uncomfortable with what he's doing in Ukraine. But there is a sense of the need to express solidarity with Russia in the hope that Russia will reciprocate should China look to capture Taiwan in due course down the track. Now, we've seen the response to troops moving into those areas from other countries, including a lot of sanctions. There's the German gas pipeline that's been shut down. There's been sanctions that are hitting Russian banks, that are hitting the finances and the travel movements of those close to Vladimir Putin. Will these kind of sanctions actually make a difference in this instance? So I think the sanctions imposed by the United States likely will make a difference, but many of the sanctions imposed by other countries across Europe and even Australia's ones likely are not going to have that much impact because they're really kid gloves sanctions. They're not terribly draconian ones. They're not really coordinating closely across countries to make sure that those who are close to Putin suffer sufficiently. Vladimir Putin has an extensive network of investments through proxies 
and a coordinated action is required to make that effective. And so far, part of the problem is in the UK, for instance, the Russian oligarchs have inveigled themselves with members of the elite there and there's real reluctance amongst some of the sympathisers in the UK to go too hard in punishing those who with whom they have friendly relations. And you know, Kensington and parts of London are very, very popular with some of the Russian oligarchs. So there's a bit of a vested interest there to not go too hard because they don't want them to leave entirely. And similarly with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, Yes, it seems like it's a significant and decisive step, but it actually hasn't been operational yet. So it's not going to make any dramatic difference to the flow of gas or the flow of revenue in the immediate short term. Whether or not it's sustained or whether it's ratcheted up further is another matter. But of course, in the meantime, the situation in the Ukraine is getting desperate. This move into Donetsk and Luhansk is, in the estimation of many, including myself now, a preliminary move, which will probably be followed up by incursions into other parts of Ukraine, depending to a certain extent on what the rest of the world does now. And from what we've seen, the sanctions that are being imposed now, I don't believe that they are going to have a sufficiently intimidatory deterrent effect because Vladimir Putin has already anticipated these steps and has built up you know, treasure chest and basically fostered a kind of siege mindset to last out through the storm, if you like. And that storm looks like including further incursions into Ukraine. John, just how volatile is this region at the moment? We know that NATO has troops on the ground in countries that are signatories around Ukraine. We know that there are pro-Russian supporting countries also surrounding Ukraine who say they are there to help if needed. There's Russia themselves. There's the separatists in eastern Ukraine. There's a lot of military hardware in that region right now. Just how volatile is that? Could that kick off something pretty major? It could be very major. We're now reportedly 190,000 troops, about 80% of which are reported to be pretty well operationally poised to conduct an invasion. That is a force as large, if not larger, than the US deployed for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. In addition, the Russian Navy is operating in the Black Sea and in the Mediterranean as effectively a blocking force for any NATO assertion into that space. So this is potentially going to get very ugly. Now, the thing is that Vladimir Putin appears to be banking on a lack of resolve from the West to push back. And it's kind of worked so far. He's got away with everything he's asked for. He's been a little bit surprised that the Americans are showing more spine than he had anticipated following the fall of Kabul and their defeat in Afghanistan and the fact that he had anticipated they were more focused on pivoting to Asia and dealing with the Taiwan crisis than with anything in the central Eurasian landmass. But events do get in the way. And my sense is that this is having a galvanizing effect across Europe in terms of recognising that this accommodation and placatory behaviour towards Vladimir Putin is actually not working and may well just accelerate. And of course, people in countries like Poland, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, 
as well as Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, etc. The recent NATO additional member states are nervous as hell because they volunteered and appealed to join NATO. Why? Because from 1945 till 1990, they were under the rule of Soviet control, communist control, and they don't ever want to go back there. You've got to ask yourself, Vladimir Putin's approach is Stalin-esque. It harks back to the early to mid-20th century where power came from the barrel of a gun and hang international precedents and international law, let alone UN Security Council provisions and the idea that war was outlawed and that you only declared war when you had an international mandate to do so. The problem here, of course, is that the example of 2003 when the United States invaded Iraq, it completely undermines America's moral authority on this. But at least back then, the United States had a fig leaf of authority from the UN Security Council resolution from the first Gulf War, which they claimed was still extant. This is the problem. This is a really murky space. And Vladimir Putin knows this and he's playing on this and he's kind of playing on the cynicism of many people around the world who thinks, well, you know, there's so much hypocrisy going on here. Why should we believe anybody? Why don't we just pull our heads in and let it happen? The problem with just pulling our heads in and letting it happen is that the countries like Russia under a man like Vladimir Putin can grow in ambition as their power grows, as their ability to succeed without pushback grows. And this is going to create enormous nervousness across Eastern Europe, let alone the old NATO Europe countries of Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, the United Kingdom, and so on. The thing is that the implications are not just with NATO. They're also at the other end of the Eurasian landmass because what Vladimir Putin's doing by ignoring the principles of nationhood that Ukraine is representing, he is basically sending a signal that is read loudly in Beijing that this applies for them too when it comes to Taiwan or any other territory they might want to reclaim. You know, how far back in history do you hark back for legitimacy? This is not the way forward. This is the path of perdition. Can anything stop Vladimir Putin's advances at this point, other than an outright war? One hope is that a coordinated effort internationally to impose considerably more severe sanctions that are currently being contemplated may well jolt the elite in Moscow into action to remove him and call for sanity to prevail. But the problem is, I'm not optimistic that that will happen because Putin has spent the last 20 years building up this narrative of Russia being cheated, being dishonored, being disrespected, and Russia needs to play in real politic terms a great power game about asserting its interests that are zero-sum in effect. And that seems to be resonating with a lot of people in Russia. A lot of people who might otherwise, you might think, well, you know, surely they can be reasoned with. But if they're only listening to the Russian media on this and the Russian line is just that, then Vladimir Putin may well get away with it. Of course, having said that, he has not been prepared for the last 20 years to subject himself to a truly open democratic election. He's arrested and pushed aside, if not killed, all the potential political opponents who dared to cross his path. So this is a deeply authoritarian, malevolent 
being in charge of a very powerful, if not one of the most powerful nuclear armed states in the world. This can't be responded to in the way Britain responded to Argentina in 1982, in which it pushed back, it reasserted you know, its claim over the Falklands, sank an Argentinian warship and just took it all because Argentina was not a nuclear armed state. Russia is and remains a nuclear-powered state with the ability to existentially alter the prospect of life on this planet. And you might say, hey, whoa, hold your horses, John. We're not talking nuclear war, are we? The problem is that if you go down this path, once you cross certain thresholds, a momentum builds for escalation. And this is what's getting people very, very nervous and many people looking to try and find some kind of accommodation that will placate Vladimir Putin. The problem here, of course, is, well, where is that line? What would be enough to placate him and for how long? We don't know. We don't know what's happening in the six inches between his ears, but power has been so heavily centralised in his hands that that is where the centre of gravity now lies. It's between his ears and God knows what's happening in that space. Is what we are seeing the start of World War III? We have to wait and see how the next few days and weeks unfold. But today, the war is very real for the people of Ukraine. This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our producer, Callie Borg. The Quickie's executive producer is Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.